Thank you, Lord. You said that we're invited to come to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And we are so thankful for that invitation. And so we come to you right now, Lord, with Pastor David. Lord, your heart is for the widow and the orphan. And he's carrying out your heart right there in Uganda. And so, Lord, for for the advancement of your kingdom, for the sake of those orphans, for the ministry that Pastor David's been given, Lord, we pray that right now you would touch and heal him. That he would just be overwhelmed with your presence and know that, that you are his healer. We pray the same for the Myers, Lord. Um, be with them right now. We pray for a quick recovery for them. And that, Lord, if there's something that we as a church can do to meet a need there, um, help us to do that, Lord. Bless and strengthen them, we ask in Jesus' name. And Lord, prepare our hearts right now to receive the word. Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you that we have it in our hands. How, how blessed we are to live in this age where we have so many translations. Bibles are everywhere. It's so easy to obtain when we give them away every day. Um, we just thank you. Uh, we're so blessed to be in this age where it's so readily available. But help us value it, Lord, to recognize what a gift it is that we have it. Um, Lord, to spend time in it, to let it speak to our hearts. And right now, help us to hear and receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we are in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we just, we just work our way through a book of the Bible. You happen to have joined us when we're in 1 Corinthians and at this particular passage. And in honor of God's word, I invite you all to stand with me as I read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Paul, as we, we, we've entered into this discussion that, or this uh, description that Paul's been giving the Corinthians about uh, this growing division he heard that was taking place in the church in Corinth. 
the Corinthians were forming factions around their favorite teacher. Some like this teacher, some like Paul, some like Peter. Um, and so he's addressing that problem. That their, their quarreling and their jealousy were really signs of their spiritual immaturity. They needed to grow up and see that their teachers are all on the same team. They're all gifts from God to that church, striving together to build them up in the faith so that they can become more mature. The sign of maturity is unity. And so this, this division that they were experiencing was a sign of their immaturity. In our passage for today, we see Paul is emphasizing that all their teachers are working together as servants of God to help them in that spiritual growth. But there were also detractors who were being destructive, which is a real serious issue, and that's what Paul is addressing in our passage today. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. You know, I've, I've uh, had dear friends that suggest that we don't do anything to build the temple of God, that it's all God's work and he does it all. And in a sense, that's true in one sense. Um, everything's from God. But in another sense, Paul just called the apostles and the elders fellow laborers with God. Um, God gave him the grace to lay the gospel foundation for that church in Corinth. Jesus crucified for our sins. That was the foundation. God has many laborers who are anointed, like the craftsmen who worked in the temple. If you remember the description in Exodus of, uh, I think it was Bezalel, it says he had been given this gift of, of uh, skilled workmanship. And, it, and that he was anointed to do the work. It's the same today in the church, only it's a spiritual construction. Um, it's all under God's direction, his empowerment and his inspiration, but he's graciously chosen to work through his children, which is an incredible thing. You know, I mean, God could do it all on his own. Amen? He doesn't really need us, but he graciously invites us to work with him and to let him work through us, evangelizing, discipling, preaching, teaching. Elders are both the living stones and the fellow laborers. James 3.1 warns elders that we will be strictly held strictly accountable for what we teach. Incorrect understanding of God's word can cause the building to become unstable. The ones who teach false doctrines or their own opinions will be held accountable. When Jesus taught, he would sometimes say, you have heard that it has been said, but I declare to you. And what he was doing was he was correcting um, traditions that had uh, grown up within the Jewish community, oral traditions, oral sayings, sometimes false interpretations. But what Paul is saying here is watch out for the people who say, the Bible says to you, but I say, that's completely different. That's man taking the word of God and manipulating it to fit their, their particular opinions or desires. One of 
Apostle Paul's last warnings written in the Bible is in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's easy to do that these days, you know? Whatever your opinion is, you can find a teacher that agrees with you on YouTube. Amen? <laughs> They're abundant. God help us. Instead of conforming to the word of God, we can find teachers who teach what we prefer to hear. That is building on the foundation of Jesus with material that will not stand on that day when the church is judged. In many cases, it's not even on the foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone. And in which case, it's not even the church. In Paul's day, uh, construction of a synagogue would take decades. Sometimes one builder would come and lay the foundation and he would retire and even pass on and someone else would be building the columns and the walls and then another generation would be building the, the roof of the, of the structure. But everyone who took part in the construction were all fixed on the final goal. None were more important than the others. The builders all had a common goal in sight. In this verse, Paul refers to himself as a skilled master builder. Um, it's interesting because the Greek is a little different. It actually says uh, a wise architect, Sophia architect. We, we get our word architect from this word in the Greek. But translators didn't use that word architect because obviously God is the architect. It's his plan, amen? Amen. And the way the word was actually used in Paul's day was the person who oversaw the construction. So Paul says he's kind of like a building foreman who brings in the different trades at different times and sees that it all comes together in the right way. This reminds us of Jesus' parable of houses built either on the rock or on sand. God was referred to as the rock of Israel in Genesis 49, 24. In the parable of that houses built on, on the sand, those ones collapsed when the storm came. And it's interesting, we were just going through this in uh, our discipleship group uh, and talking about how storms come to both. It doesn't matter if you're on the rock or you're on the sand, storm will come to either one. But the ones on the rock survive. The house on the rock stands firm. So when Paul calls the foundation, the teaching of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, that's Ephesians 2.20, he's declaring the word is one with God because that's what the prophets and apostles proclaim, the word of God. And any other foundation than Jesus and what he has done for us is not really a foundation at all. It's just shifting sand. And it will not withstand the storms of life. Only a life built upon the word on Jesus Christ will endure. Having that one foundation brings us into unity. We're all on that same foundation. We are being fitted together to be the temple of God. Is your life built on Jesus and his word? Paul tells us 
It was grace that made him a master builder. Jesus not only confronted Paul at the time when he was called Saul on the road to Damascus, but he had prepared Paul all his life as he studied the scriptures. You know, he was really one of the up-and-coming rabbi in the Jewish nation at the time. It's, uh, I love how God kind of takes things and turns them completely around. The head persecutor of the church becomes the greatest evangelist. So after that encounter with Jesus, Paul spent three years in the wilderness and, got, and the Holy Spirit helped Paul reinterpret all that he had learned. You know, he was taught the scriptures said this, but meant this, but he went back and saw in the light of Jesus that everything was pointing to Jesus. God revealed to him the mystery hidden for ages, that the Messiah would come and live a sinless life bear our sins to death on the cross and conquer death. And in the process, he would give us his righteousness. What an amazing mystery was revealed to him. And when that became clear, then all the scriptures just became clear. Paul laid that foundational truth for the church in Corinth. That was their foundation. Then other ministers came and built upon it. But Paul gave them a warning. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. We're responsible to God for what we teach. He is the word. If we distort the message, we're distorting the image of God in the listener's minds. However, the application of everyone being careful how he builds can apply broadly to more than teachers. We all influence the building of the church. The warning is for all of us to direct our attention to how we are building. What part do you play in the church? And that's not this organization that's called Wayside. It's not, it's not any of our meetings or anything. It's you as an individual believer, as a part of all the believers here in Sedona. Are we pointing others to scripture and a personal relationship with Jesus or to ourselves? Or are we not pointing at all? Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The main thing is Jesus and the grace that comes to us because of his sacrifice for us. Those who teach works or the law, somehow making us pleasing to God or any other false doctrine will find the next verses applicable to them. It won't help the vineyard or the building, and it doesn't result in anything of substance that remains. There's no reward in the end for all their labor. It's like a homeowner. Uh, recently, there's, there's so many homeowner shows on television now. But there's this one where uh, it's, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's someone who goes in and helps people who really messed up their renovation. <laughs> You know, they built these walls or tore stuff out and the, that building's a mess and they come in and, and fix it all up and make it work. Teaching works or, or basing your life on works or on false teaching is like, like someone who's trying to do a rehab on their life and Jesus needs to come in, tear it all out and do it right. Amen. Do it correctly. Um, 
This foundation, Jesus, is sure. It provides stability. All other foundations are not foundations in comparison with Christ. In this way, if Christianity is true, it provides the foundation for two of the greatest longings of the human heart. First, the human heart longs for unity and reconciled relationships. No one wakes up thinking, how can I create discord today? How can I disrespect others and have them turn on me? We long for shalomic, reconciled, harmonious, holistic relationships, don't we? Second, the human heart longs for stability that can withstand life storms. Again, no one wakes up thinking, I hope life throws me a curveball today, one that I can't handle. It'd be great to experience a trial that'll shake me to the core. We long for steady, normal, pleasant, secure lives. We long for identity. So we spend our lives constructing our own. But the only place that we can find it is on that one unshakable ground, the rock of Christ Jesus. That's not the organized church we see, but the true believers whose identities are based on that foundation. They make up this church of Christ. Isaiah prophesied about this foundation in, in Isaiah 28, 16. You know, so much of the of a scripture, especially, well, all of it, all goes, the New Testament goes back to the old and everything you find in the new is somehow pulled from the old. And this idea that the Apostle Paul's giving about the foundation is from Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be in haste. The Lord laid the foundation stone of his beloved son, in Jerusalem. Paul laid it in Corinth by proclaiming the gospel of what Christ had done there in, in Corinth. Do you notice in that Isaiah passage that the Lord didn't say the one who stands on it will not be in haste, but rather the one who believes will not be in haste. Salvation's by faith, and those who believe by faith that we have a sure foundation that cannot be shaken are not running around trying to find their way to God. They're at peace with God, which means they won't be in haste. The Hebrew word for haste is to be agitated, to be disturbed, or, or in a panic. We find our rest in Jesus. When Peter quoted the verse, he changed it a little bit from haste to confounded. Whoever believes in him will not be confounded or will not be put to shame. We enter Jesus as our Sabbath rest, ceasing from our own works, letting him do the work in us. And our shame is removed because he took it upon himself on the cross. Verse 12 and 13. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The precious stones and metals are the truths of scripture and disciples brought into the kingdom. The combustibles are fluff, methods, feel-good sermons, prosperity doctrine, secret wisdom, and the likes. The word will stand firm when the heavens melt away, the scripture declares. If you want something that lasts, you better seek to know the word and make disciples because everything else will burn. God will separate that which is substantial from that which is temporary and meaningless. Or as the author of Hebrews expressed it, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken will remain. Truth is eternal. The actions in response to the prompting of the Spirit bring lasting results. Our growing relationship with Jesus is eternal. This life is so short compared to eternity. If only our minds could grasp the brevity of life and how our choices affect our eternal state, we would certainly be striving to invest in heaven. Amen? Jesus commanded us to lay up our treasure in heaven. He meant to lay up that which will endure through the fire of testing. So we examine our works. Paul also wrote, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. See if it's merely busy doing things that bring the respect of men, promoting ourselves, or are we acting at God's leading in obedience to his word and the spirit? In chapter 4, verse 5 of this letter, Paul tells us that in that day, God will disclose the purposes of the heart. We can fake it now and, and impress people, but on that day, the day when Christ returns to judge the earth, all will be disclosed. Peter prayed that the coming disclosure would result in praise, glory, and honor of God. Is that what the disclosure of your heart will reveal? Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. What remains is truth of the word, fruit from the vineyard, the building completed, a dwelling for God, the bride of Christ. All else is just tinder. God is a consuming fire. Only the eternal things will remain. Diamonds are not really forever. But faith in Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, the transformation to godliness in lives, the word of God in our hearts, and the fruit of righteousness is forever. If your life results in those eternal things, you will receive a reward. Heavenly rewards are mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. What they are, we have only a hint of in, in the crowns mentioned in Scripture. There's the crown of incorruption. There's a crown of righteousness, crowns of life, crowns of glory. But surely these crowns are not little gold things that we put on our heads. I think it's figurative if we look at the parables of Jesus. Those who invested what he, the master had given them were given authority. So I believe that Probably the rewards, although it's hard to imagine now, are some kind of authority. 
Um, we can only guess what the rewards are in the heavenly realm, but we can know they are more than worth any effort here in our short lives. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. Living for the perishable will mean that you lose all that you labor for. You may be saved, but there will be nothing to show for your, your life, no rewards to lay at Jesus' feet. You wouldn't work for an employer for a year without a paycheck, yet some believers spend their whole lives working for nothing. It's still better than weeping and gnashing of teeth, but what regret people must have to know they wasted their lives on what would not endure. The family and friends you could have discipled, the scripture you could have hidden in your heart, the lives you could have touched and pointed to Jesus must haunt those who lose all to the fire. That is, until God wipes away every tear from our eyes. The 15th chapter of this letter seems to indicate that there are different levels of glory in heaven as it compares the resurrected saints to stars who differ in their brightness. How we live today affects our eternal state in heaven. You know, I think most Christians have this idea that we, are just, we all go up and we're all the same and we're, it's all good, and, and that's kind of true. But as I said, 29 times the New Testament mentions these differences in rewards. And I never hear any teaching on this. And maybe it's because as teachers, we don't want people to be laboring for an exalted position in heaven. That shouldn't be the motivation. We serve out of love for Jesus and all that he's done for us. And because he's just, he rewards us for it. It's a clear theme in the New Testament. Verses 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So Paul now explains why careful attention to how we build is such a serious matter. Do you not know is, is kind of a mild rebuke. He uses it I think uh, uh, 10 times in this letter. And it's partly because um, some of the Corinthians saw their gift of wisdom. And uh, when you look at the gifts in chapter 12, there's the gift of wisdom. And some of them had believed they had this gift of wisdom and they were so wise and yet they weren't living it out. So he tells them, do you not know? Don't you know? You think you're so wise, but don't you know these basic truths? Um, Paul is saying you should know this, but you're acting like you don't. The building is the temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two different Greek words for temple. Um, one word is that uh, temple precinct, and the other word is the sanctuary itself, the shrine, the, the, the building that they enter. And that's the word that he's using here. Temple is singular, but you is plural. He's speaking of the church of Corinth, the gathering of believers in that city. 
if anyone destroys the church of Corinth through false teaching or division or whatever means, he warns that God will destroy him. Now, what does that mean? We can see that in the letters to the churches in Revelation um, chapter 2 through to, uh, 3. Some of the churches were told that their candlestick would be removed if they didn't change, if there wasn't repentance, if these false doctrines didn't stop. And we look today in most of those cities, there is no church of Christ in those cities. The candlestick was removed. Someone did destroy it by bringing in false teaching. Paul's warning them of the wolves that come in and devour the flock to use them for their own advancement and their personal gain. Paul referred to these people as fierce wolves, and I've seen people destroy the temple, even here locally and with some churches. Pastors or teachers become popular and pride begins to grow and they justify giving in to greed or lust. And when they're found out, and they are almost always are found out, the temple collapses because the eyes of the congregation were on that man instead of on Jesus. The use of anyone in verse 17 means it can come from someone other than those in leadership. Sometimes it's a prominent, prideful member who wants his or her way and gets people to side with him or her. The faction grows until finally the church splits. And they usually draw away as many as they can, believing that they're saving them, but are in actuality justifying having their prideful way. God will destroy him is quite a warning. And sadly, I have witnessed that as well. When lust is involved, it usually results in divorce, like the situation with King David. The children are devastated. When it's out of pride, the new faction carries on for a while, and then it falls apart. The result is that the followers no longer desire fellowship. This is one reason equal and accountable elders are God's clear plan for leadership in the church. They hold one another accountable and can discipline one another and carry on if one falls away. The more sinister way of destroying the temple is when someone begins uh, teaching false doctrine secretly so that the elders are unaware. Fortunately, that's usually found out before they, the temple is destroyed, but it still does a lot of damage. This church has been damaged in that way several times in the past, and it almost succeeded in destroying the church shortly before I was called here. We should not be ignorant of the enemy's tactics. A church divided will not stand. God placed this church here in the middle of this tourist center to touch lives. Now, when it was built, it was the far edge of town and there was nothing around it. But God had a plan. You know, this entrance to the city coming right by the front of the church, that only happened a few years ago. The ma it's amazing to think back that in 1959, the Jordans thought, well, I'll give them that property way on the edge of town. <laughs> and then this, now in our time, God has the city put the main parking lot right above the church and build the ramp down to the main part of the city right beside the church. 
so that as people visit the city, they walk by and pick up a Gospel of John or a sermon. You know, God's in the details. But wouldn't it be more than a shame? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if this church turned into a retail outlet? And that can happen when if division is allowed to spring up. We don't have it now. Praise God. Thank the Lord. We are in unity. This church is in unity. But we need to be aware that that's the enemy's device, to bring in something from the outside, that some false teaching or some misinterpretation of Scripture that, that pulls people away. The proper way to handle those things is immediately when it comes up, bring it to the elders. If there's something you see that you think is wrong or you personally feel is something is wrong, bring it to the elders. You know, in the past, this church has been, has had those situations. And sometimes the people were totally off base. Nevertheless, the elders took it to prayer, prayed about it, asked the Lord what to do about it, and sought God's answer to their suggestion or their, uh, their interpretation or their way. That's one of the safeguards of having churches led by elders. Both in the letter to Timothy and Titus, Paul specifically outlines what, how it's important to pick elders with those specific qualifications. So sadly, churches in the world today have gone to a board, CEO-type leadership, or a single pastor who's in charge of everything. That's dangerous because it's so easy to bring it down. We're saved by grace through Jesus' sacrifice of himself, and that puts us all in the same boat. Sinners saved by grace. Amen? Amen. I want to close the message with the admonition that the Apostle Paul, at the beginning of this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And let us all respond with a wholehearted amen. 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 Jill's going to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.